This is History Talk, the history podcast that explains today's biggest news. I'm your host, Leticia Wiggins. And I'm your host, Patrick Patyandi. Over the past several months, the world has observed dramatic scenes of desperate people trying to reach Europe by embarking on flimsy boats into Turkey and Greece, crossing barbed wire fences in Bulgaria and Hungary, catching rides in overcrowded trains in Macedonia, and sleeping in public squares in Serbia and elsewhere. Locals and European member states are divided. While some greet the migrants, or in many cases refugees, with water, blankets, and toys, others yell ugly words, point to their own economic struggles, or simply turn their eyes away. This is hardly the first time that Europeans have experienced the pains and prospects of mass migration, nor the first time that we have seen the global movement of people from the Middle East. On today's History Talk, produced by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, we discuss the migration or refugee crisis in Europe, in the context of a much larger history of global migration with guests Teodora Dragostinova, Robin Judd, and Stephen Hyland. As they illustrate, there's much more to this issue than the news media is reporting. Hello, my name is Teodora Dragostinova. I am a native of Bulgaria and a professor of modern European history at The Ohio State University, where I teach courses on Eastern Europe, nationalism, migration, communism, the Cold War, among others. Hi, my name is Robin Judd. I am a professor of Jewish and European history here at The Ohio State University, where I teach courses in Jewish history, gender history, European history, and American history. And my research concerns the migration of European Jewish survivors to Canada, the United States, and Britain. I'm Stephen Hyland. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of History and Political Science at Wingate University. Uh, I teach uh, world history and Latin American history uh, and uh, a variety of courses that look at the phenomenon of, of global migration. Great. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. We appreciate it. Um, So to begin, in a few sentences, what do you see is happening today in the migration crisis? What are the most important events and processes, and what is the core essence of these events? And Teodora Dragostinova, we'd like you to start us off here. So it depends how you define today's migration crisis and which crisis exactly we are talking about. 2014, there were 60 million refugees and displaced persons worldwide. Are we talking about the contemporary, I mean, the current uh, refugee crisis in Europe, which perhaps has peaked uh, at about 1 million people? And how does that compare globally to the rest of the migration uh, movements that we see? Uh, I assume we're talking mainly about the um, migration crisis in Europe today. So I want to sketch out four processes that uh, have really converged in this current uh, refugee crisis crisis. First of all, uh, we know that the Mediterranean has always been a major point of human contact. What we are seeing today, people crossing the Mediterranean looking for safety is nothing new. Second, we have to remember that we have global integration processes going on. And what we really see today is how contradictory globalization is. Uh, Third, uh, what is very clearly happening here is the manifestation of um, the failed policies of Western intervention in other parts of the world, which are becoming uh, more and more clear uh, in this uh, migration, uh, a major source of this migration uh, crisis. And finally, we also have the uneven process of European integration, uh, which is very clear through this migration crisis. And combined with a bloody civil war that is going on in one corner of the world, uh, we very clearly see this uh, refugee crisis 
is developed out of very objective factors. So we don't have an invasion. We don't have a flood. We have a very clear patterns that have developed to cause this migration crisis. Anything to add from Robin or Stephen? It seems uh, as if we need to remember a few things. First, that um, there's a difference between a, a refugee and a migrant, mm. right? And Good. I think today we'll be talking a little bit about today's refugee crisis mm-hmm. uh, as compared to sort of a question about immigration more generally. Second, we live in a world where we are hyper aware of many things going on in many different places and at many different times. Um, and as such, we um, are much more sensitive to uh, and much more have much more nuanced information about what's happening in the world vis-a-vis the refugee crisis. That's great. And the only thing that I would like to add is that, again, I think migration is a phenomenon that can at one and the same time reflect what are, what's going on in terms of global processes but tells us very much about the sending zones and the receiving zones uh, around the world. And so, Stephen, this isn't the first time that we've seen a significant wave of migration out of the Middle East. Can you let us know how this explosion of migration fits into longer-term patterns of migration out of the Middle East? Sure. Uh, What I'll do is I'll I'll kind of focus towards the end of the 19th century and then rapidly bring us up to the present. But uh, what you had in in the case that Where Syrian Lebanon is today, it formed the heart of the Arab lands of the Ottoman Empire. And towards the end of the 19th century, there were two phenomena that were going on. One, as the Ottoman Empire contracted, you had large numbers of refugees that were coming from uh, lands that were lost and being resettled uh, throughout Syria and Lebanon, uh, primarily Syria, but elsewhere uh, throughout the Ottoman Empire. At the same time that was going on, there was large-scale voluntary immigration departing primarily uh, from Lebanon and Syria as well, but elsewhere, you know, down in uh, the areas around Jerusalem and Nablus and these sorts of places uh, as well. And that was something that continued through World War I. Um, in the years after the Second World War, what we saw is a lot of regional migration. So you had a lot of Egyptians and Yemenis and Syrians that moved to the, Gulf, uh, to the oil-producing states of Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states. Uh, the Emirates and Bahrain. At the same time, you had large numbers of North African Arabs that were moving into Europe, uh, part of labor uh, regimes, labor agreements that were created by former colonial powers, be it France, Germany, uh, and whatnot. And uh, more recently, you know, once we got into the into the 1980s with some of the more uh, the wars that took place in. Iraq, uh, or I guess Gulf War One, that led to large-scale immigration out of those, uh, talking about the deportation of one million Yemenis, uh, as well as hundreds of thousands of Egyptians uh, that took place. Palestinians were targeted as well. They were viewed as subversive. And so you, you always had large-scale movement of peoples, but it reflected what the particular uh, political and economic situations were uh, in those moments. Do you feel like compared to today's uh, situation that you see more of a kind of continuation of past events, or do you see this as kind of a break with with some of that past? I mean, in terms of uh, people fleeing conflict, I mean, you do have that connection with the late 19th century and the and the you know the the contraction of the Ottoman Empire. But in terms of people who left Syria and Lebanon, that was largely uh, voluntary. That was, I mean, it was a cultural it was a it was a cultural feature where you had, uh, in the case of Mount Lebanon, which is the mountain range that overlooks Beirut, you had one quarter of the population that was living outside of it uh, on the eve of World War I. And 18% of the regional population 
was living outside. And that was actually comparable to the Italian diaspora. Uh, but again, that was largely uh, voluntary in nature. So when we talk about Syrians today, as well as Iraqis today, I do think that there's an important distinction between this wave of people and the wave from the era of mass migration a century ago. So if we are going to revisit the Ottoman Empire, the end of the Ottoman Empire was accompanied with the mass movement of people. Uh, one scholar has used the term unmixing to indicate uh, the scale of the population movement that occurred during this time period. Um, I am thinking more about the World War I period, which unleashed a huge migration wave uh, in the entire area. And in fact, in some of these areas, these movements, these migration movements, this refugee crisis uh, lasted more than 10 years because there's also, uh, they go back to the Balkan Wars and they go into the 1920s. The first case of a forced population movement, of a compulsory population exchange, in fact, occurred in the aftermath of the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire between Turkey and Greece in 1923, when more than two million individuals were mandated to leave their places of birth and resettle to the other country. So we have a lot of such, um, we have many such examples. And those forced population movements were executed under the supervision of the Western powers. So I do want to return here to an earlier point that I made, that many of the complex processes that occurred in this area were the direct result of Western intervention in these areas. And this legacy, this historical legacy, continues to inform the way populations are experiencing Western intervention in their countries today. Many people are describing this as the greatest movement of people in Europe since World War II. And we just want to know, is it? And also getting to the kind of base of Europe's peoples and governments, how are they handling these issues of immigration after the war? And Robin, we'll throw this question to you. So first of all, we have to remember that in today's refugee crisis, um, many of the individuals who are displaced are displaced within Syria, and then there are millions others, right? I mean, uh, Steve may ha be much more familiar with the numbers or Theodora, but my understanding is that there are 11 million Syrians who have fled their homes because of war, right? Seven million displaced within Syria, four million are refugees outside of Syria, and of the four million, about 90% of these refugees are in Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey, right? So m many of the refugees, not all, but many of them are not in Europe. Um, many of them are in Europe. Uh, certainly in the aftermath of the Second World War, even sort of as the Second World War was happening, we have a refugee crisis. Um, the refugee crisis, many would argue, began even before the war breaks out in 1939, right, but rather begins in the early 30s. Some even argue in the late 20s um, as uh, there are uh, increasing countries moving to the right and, and individuals no longer feeling safe in their homes. Certainly, today's refugee crisis uh, parallels, uh, has many historical parallels with the refugee crisis of the post-war period. Um, are we yet at the same numbers? No, not yet. Uh, I don't think so. Um, since they're not perhaps yet in Europe, um, or the millions of them are not yet in Europe. I mean, there are 11 million people or so who are displaced in the aftermath of the Second World War within the European continent. How... Uh, 
the nations of the world uh, dealt with the European European refugee crisis of the Second World War was multifold. Uh, beginning in uh, really in 1943, we have the creation of UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, um, which is revisited in 1946 uh, when it becomes the IRO, the International Refugee Organization. Um, but it takes a very long time. Some argue um, it never gets completed to solve the refugee crisis of the Second World War. Um, there are uh, it's over a decade's worth of interventions to help move uh, the refugees uh, uh, of Europe, um, all the while sort of creating uh, law, international laws that set out first what a refugee is, right? I mean, that sort of a def- the definition of a refugee is part of this post-World War II period, right? It's the Geneva Convention on Refugees of 1951 that not only define refugees, but I think in some ways even more importantly and certain for today's conversation, right, prohibit their forcible return, um, to their countries of, of refuge. And I think, you know, going back to something that Theodora, you know, began us with, you know, we have to sort of recognize that, that integration is not something that happens right away. Um, and second, that this uh, refugee crisis and the institutions that um, either uh, that will kind of support it or that will make it even more complicated are institutions that have a very uh, deep historical origin. Stephen, anything to add to that? The the only thing that I would add um, to what to what Robin pointed out is that yes the the concentration of Syrian refugees are in the countries that border Syria currently and one of the great ironies that I find of this is that they're the ones who are bearing the brunt of this refugee crisis but they're also the same countries that aren't complaining about the refugee crisis. And one more thing I would like to add if we're talking about parallels uh, with World War Two or uh, rather comparisons to World War II and assertions that a certain refugee crisis is the biggest since World War II. Uh, The one that um, bears the closest resemblance is really uh, the Yugoslav war refugee crisis of the 1990s, uh, when you have close to 2 million internally displaced persons and refugees flee Yugoslavia during um, mainly the Bosnian war, but also their refugees from other parts uh, of Yugoslavia. And uh, what is clear is that similarly to today, European countries were completely unprepared to meet uh, the challenge, to, to, to deal with the challenge, to accommodate people. There was a patchwork of different responses by the different European countries to the Yugoslav crisis. Um, there were various uh, experiment- experimentations throughout the war, how exactly to deal with these refugees. Some of them were given temporary humanitarian protection status, and then they were encouraged to go back to Yugoslavia during uh, the, uh, after the end of the war. I suspect that something similar will happen today with uh, some of the refugees. So perhaps we actually might be more helpful for us to look closer to our current moment to understand where Europe is today rather than go back to historical precedents. I mean, definitely we can learn a lot from those dynamics that uh, have manifested themselves in history, but we also have very, um, you know, contemporary basically parallels that might be more helpful to think about how Europe today could be handling some of those crises. Do some of those more contemporary parallels help us explain why some European countries have reacted differently from other ones today? So, for example, Hungary, you know, has gotten some press for, you know, building walls and shuttling migrants either across its country one way or the other, um, or Germany has been lauded for more or less uh, offering a more warm welcome. 
So that's a loaded question. Uh, I am going to talk about the part of Europe that I know the best, that is Eastern Europe. And Eastern Europe has a long history of complicated relationship to its uh, linguistic, religious and national minorities. What I'm seeing today, this hostility to uh, religious difference, uh, to a national uh, difference, is uh, not anything that is surprising me given the history of the region where there have been waves upon waves of expulsions of unwanted populations from the establishment of those nation states in the beginning of the 20th century up until today. And all of the tensions uh, that come uh, with you know, the presence uh, of uh, national minorities and And the history uh, of that presence complicated the way the citizens of Eastern Europe have uh, reacted to the current crisis. The different rules of national sovereignty rule the way their governing elites handles those crises. Just to add one or two more things, I, I think Theodora highlighted this question of sovereignty. I think tied with that, when we're looking at some of the countries of Central, Western and Eastern Europe, We also have to think about what is the place of citizenship and notions of membership in each of these countries. Um, how is that question of citizenship and membership? Sometimes those are the same thing. Sometimes they're quite different. How have they evolved over time? How have they developed? I mean, in the case of Germany, they've had the opportunity to revisit the question of citizenship and the aftermath of unification. Um, and so that may help us understand a little bit better as to why Germany may be at the forefront of welcoming Uh, these these refugees into um, into a, its borders. Uh, the other thing that she pointed out that should be highlighted is uh, questions of economic stability. Uh, and you know, uh, certainly, it, it's easier for us to understand why those countries that are at economic risk, um, why they may respond a certain way. Sometimes it's harder for us to understand why countries that are experiencing economic stability are are, are aren't acting in the way in which we would expect them to. And Stephen, a question occurs to me about uh, how countries in the Middle East have received some of these migrants and refugees, and if if there are kind of similar themes going on in those nations as are going on in Europe. Uh, it's a good question, and it's it's difficult uh, and complicated because there is some sort of precedence, right? You have Palestinian camps from the '48 war and the '67 war in Jordan, in Syria, and in Lebanon. In the case of Jordan and Syria before the uh, civil war broke out in Syria, Palestinians had uh, economic rights. You know, they could start businesses, they could work in the labor market and stuff like that, but Pal Palestinians in Lebanon simply could not. Uh, they were forbidden by Lebanese law from entering um, uh, into the labor markets uh, legally and, and so on and so forth. So it's unclear to me, uh, I don't know how that law has been applied uh, to Syrian refugees Uh, certainly, I think there's an immediate need just to address the basic needs of these people, but whether or not they're integrating into local labor markets, um, I don't know uh, uh, where that stands at the moment or what the sorts of laws have been passed uh, in that regard. So some have been more welcoming, and that's also, I think, a response in the terms of the number. There's a million and a half uh, or more than a million in Lebanon. Lebanon by itself is a country of only three million people, so we're talking about one out of almost every four people in wow. Lebanon now is a Syrian refugee, whereas it's significantly less in Jordan, where it's only one in 12 uh, people are a Syrian refugee. So that's certainly going to play into the Lebanese angst towards the number of Syrians that are currently inside their borders. 
I'm also wondering if, speaking of this, uh, you know, why countries have reacted differently, and I'm wondering if the European Union has complicated the reaction here or if it's made it better than it would have been otherwise. There are no common laws in the European European Union governing, I mean, the way asylum law is applied. I mean, that is uh, basically uh, a matter of national sovereignty, okay. and each state has a different set of laws. Plus, in general, the way the international community handles refugees is that you have to examine each case individually. Mm. Uh, so each individual, uh, uh, the way I understand it, according to the 1951 uh, convention, has the right under international law to apply for asylum and that has to be determined on a case-by-case basis. So I think it's very difficult to have any common policies. My understanding of of partly what's made the EU piece a bit more complicated is the nature in which um, when people uh, petition for asylum, which is to say one is supposed to petition for asylum at the moment that one enters the country, right? Um, and so once they've entered into a European country, then they're part of the EU, and now they're lab- they're petitioning for asylum. And there are some countries that therefore don't want the refugees to petition for asylum there and would like for them to leave as quickly as possible and petition for asylum elsewhere. In that sense, I think the EU perhaps does make it more complicated, uh, perhaps not. Uh, but certainly, for us as observers, we often imagine the EU as some sort of monolith. Oh, it's part of the European Union, and therefore they sh- everyone should be behaving the same way. And in fact, that is exactly not the case, right? Um, that we have many, many different countries with many different histories and um, many different sets of laws. The, the one thing I'd like to add is, yeah, I think one of, the, one of the EU policies that does complicate it, it's called the Dublin system. So if a person is going to apply for asylum in the EU, by the Dublin rule or the Dublin system, they have to do it in the first EU country that they set foot in. And so if most of these people are traveling through the Balkans uh, on their way to Germany, in many instances, the first country that they, the first EU country they pass through is, is Hungary. And that may also be playing into why Hungary's making the decisions that they are. Based on what we've learned from the history of migration and refugees today on this show, how should European countries develop and implement their policy towards these migrants? Is there anything that we can we can tr- try to learn from this? What I would say is I'd, I'd push back a little bit on the question mm-hmm. um, and say, if, if anything, what we should learn is that we shouldn't be so triumphalist. Um, and first, mm-hmm. that we should recognize that in the world in which we live today, um, we're all responsible for... Um, pushing our legislators to develop uh, smart, strategic, humane uh, laws around uh, refugees. Um, We should be aware of our own uh, country's histories around refugees. Um, And so the first thing I would say is uh, that uh, one of our lessons of the Second World War is that uh, the U.S. uh, didn't fulfill even its quotas. Um, And so we should sort of know uh, our own policies. So that would that would be the first thing. The second thing I would say is, um, you know, going back to something that Theodora said earlier. I mean, these these processes take a very long time, um, and that there shouldn't be an expectation that uh, it's October now that by November um, everything's going to be solved. Um, that if anything, what we've learned from the Second World War, um, in addition to that first piece that I mentioned earlier about the lack of triumphalism, um, is that uh, that these are very complicated processes, um, and uh, they're going to they're going to take a tremendous amount of support systems to solve. One final thing I'd I'd like to say is um, the laws that will be put in place 
can only shape migration flows, right? There's a, there's a prominent historian who looks at migration in Latin America, and he says laws don't matter uh, in terms of migration. Migrants are going to go where migrants are going to go. Um, now, I'm not as flamboyant as that, but I do think that uh, it's very difficult to regulate or regularize the flow of people. People will find places, they'll find, uh, you know, uh, black labor markets to integrate into uh, even the most progressive laws that we pass will have perhaps unintended consequences, but even the most uh, capricious laws, uh, draconian laws, uh, won't won't resolve the problem either. Um, So... If we look for the lessons of history, I just want to point out like three things that we see happen over and over again um, in the past. First, refugees and immigrants are always a small portion of the population of the host country, with some exceptions. So if we take the current number of refugees in Europe, which is estimated to be about 800,000 individuals who have, apply, uh, who have arrived this year, out of a population of 750 million, which is a population of the European Union, these people don't even register statistically. They are under 1%. Uh, if we even take Germany, which is at about 82 million uh, population, um, the challenges are there, but this is a large country and a prosperous country that can deal with these sort of populations. So I don't think, I think that in the media, uh, there is always the tendency to dramatize some of these events. We do need to take uh, the facts for what they are. Second, uh, historical research also shows us that very often after such refugee crises occur, a large portion of the refugees tend to return back to their homes because no one or many people um, prefer to go back to what they know and to try and reestablish their, pri- their, their prior networks, then start life anew. So if conditions allow it, many people will try to return or at least they will try to go closer to home. And third, there's a lot of speculation out there whether this is, uh, Robin raised this question, whether this is a refugee or a migrant crisis. And what history teaches us really is that it's very difficult to distinguish between refugees and immigrants. And we cannot strictly talk about refugees as political immigrants and then immigrants as economic immigrants because the factors often overlap and this is very clear in the current situation that we it will be very difficult to actually uh, sort out what the primary reason for the, my, the, the migration of some of these uh, people is in, in the current context. So if we also take this long-term perspective that integration is a process that takes a few generations to, uh, to complete and if we also look at some prior historical examples how long it took to integrate uh, some of these migrants into their host societies, we can be more optimistic, perhaps, about um, uh, the future of these migration movements. We'll have to leave it there. A big thank you to our three historians, Teodora Dragostinova and Robin Judd, both of Ohio State, and Stephen Hyland, joining us by phone from Wingate University. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. Our main editors are Stephen Kong and Nicholas Bragg-Vogel. 
Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Patiandi and Leticia Wiggins. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.